Who is Jesus? Uh, perhaps maybe the second most important question uh, that you could ask yourself or that you could answer. Who is Jesus? I mean, this is a question that's been asked now for the last 2,000 years by all sorts of different people, by historians, by theologians, by grandparents, by children, by students, and everybody in between. Who is Jesus? And uh, this little video, it was a clip from the Alpha course that we ran this last fall where they went around the world asking people, who is Jesus? And in the video, you saw a number of different answers. And I mean, when you just ask people today, you get a ton of different answers. I mean, some people would say, well, he is the son of God. Other people would say, I don't know if he actually even existed. Others would say, uh, he was a fraud. He kind of deceived a lot of different people. Other people would call him a miracle worker. Uh, some people would say that he has contributed to wars and, and deaths throughout human history. Other people would say that he has given them the gift of life and the gift of a transformed life. I mean, if you ask a hundred different people who is Jesus, you'd get probably almost a hundred different answers. And this is a really important question to think about and to ask, but I don't think it's the most important question. I think the most important question and the more important question than who is Jesus is the question, who is Jesus to you? And that makes it a little bit more personal, doesn't it? Who is Jesus to you? I mean, that's a little more uncomfortable because we have to decide for ourselves what we think about him, not just say what we feel like other people think about him. That's a question that, that we can't really wiggle out of, but it's a question that I believe has great consequences for our life now, and I believe for eternity. Who is Jesus to you? That's the question I want us to look at this morning. And so as we look at that together, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Almighty God, we confess that that our ways are not your ways, your thoughts are above our thoughts. And God, right now, we know that we don't always see things clearly, but we pray that you'd help us to see your son Jesus more clearly this morning. And as we explore this most important question, I pray that you would speak through my words, you would speak despite my words, and that you would speak to each of us in the stillness of our own hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I say this every week, but if you haven't joined us, we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark together. And we've been doing it on Sunday mornings, but also we have reading guides so that you can read on your own, in your home, in your personal devotion time as well, and kind of track with us. And generally, I'm preaching a passage that you're going to read in the week ahead. So uh, back here in the corner and at the exits to the building, we have little reading guides. We would love for you to join in. It's not too late. Uh, you could spend about an hour this afternoon and get called up with us right now. So we'd love for you to join us in reading. And if you've been reading throughout Mark's gospel, his account of Jesus' life, one of the things you might have discovered is that Jesus loved asking questions. Have you picked up on this yet? Jesus loved asking questions. And now I didn't go through and add up all the questions he asked, but other people have. And Jesus asked 300 and seven questions in the Gospels. He asked 307 questions. People asked him 168 questions, and he answered three. 
He loved asking questions. And now you might think, well, maybe that's because, you know, he was kind of trying to be wishy-washy or not really, really tell other people what he thought. But I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. I think Jesus asked a lot of questions because questions are very, very powerful things. One of my professors, Dr. Lauren Winter, she says, you know, questions have a lot of different functions. One of them is to elicit new information. I mean, if your spouse comes home from work or your child comes home from school and, you know, you ask them that question, how was your day? Sometimes you learn nothing, right? They don't tell you anything. And then sometimes you learn a lot about what's going on and you, you gain new insights into their life and you hear about drama that you wouldn't have known otherwise because you asked the question, how was your day? Other times, questions can, can help us make new discoveries and, and put together our thoughts. I mean, right now, the world is asking scientists the questions, hey, can you give us a vaccine for the coronavirus? And our hope is that this question to them is actually going to be met with a response, and, and it's going to be helpful. Other times, questions, if you've ever been in a courtroom, you know that lawyers use questions to try and convince a jury of something. Still other times, I mean, you think about great teachers. What do great teachers do? They, they ask questions. They don't just lecture the entire time. And questions help build relationships. Some of you, I know you, you haven't been on the dating scene lately. But if you've ever been on a date with somebody who just talked about themselves the entire time and never asked you any questions about yourself, anybody ever been on a date like that? It's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. You don't want to go out with somebody again because when people are just talking about themselves and they never ask you any questions, the relationship doesn't grow any further. And so questions can also build a relationship. And so today, what we're going to be looking at in Mark chapter 8 is is when Jesus asks his disciples the two questions that we mentioned at the beginning. He asks them, hey, who do people say that I am? When you go around and you ask people who is Jesus and you hear him talking about me, who do they say that I am? He asks that question and then he asks the more personal question to the disciples. He says, hey, who do you say that I am? And the reason I think Jesus asks these two questions is because he wants to help the disciples clarify in their minds his identity and to begin to discover the implications for their lives, how that's going to impact them. And so in Mark chapter 8 is where we find Jesus asking these questions beginning in verse 27. And the setting for these questions is this kind of seemingly random city called Caesarea Philippi. And now up until this point, uh, Jesus has been with his disciples around the Sea of Galilee. They've been sailing from one place to another. We've been reading about them on the shores and the miracles and everything. But now they travel 25 miles north kind of like to the middle of nowhere. And a lot of times when we're reading the Bible, if you're like me, you just like read Caesarea Philippi, Bartholomew, all these names, and they just kind of go in one ear and out the other. But sometimes the geography helps us see something important, and this is one of those cases. Because Caesarea Philippi wasn't just a random city that Jesus took them to as he was asking them these important questions. Caesarea Philippi was a city that had a long and interesting history. It was a city where pagan gods had been worshipped for a long time. Gods like the little g-god Baal. And people would make sacrifices to them. There was another god named Pan. And they would go and they would sacrifice animals to him. And this was a city in which a man named Herod Philip ruled over much of the Roman Empire from. 
This was kind of like a Washington, D.C. type place that Jesus takes the disciples to where he asks them this question, who do you say that I am? And so it's in this setting of all of these Greek gods, of all uh, of these powerful people, this place where people are ruling on high from authority, that Jesus, one day, he's walking with his disciples. We pick up in verse 27. And in the villages around Caesarea Philippi, on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say that you're one of the prophets. What about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? It doesn't tell us here the response of the disciples immediately of of what they were thinking or feeling. But I imagine that this is one of those questions the disciples were glad that they were walking down a road with Jesus so they didn't have to look him in the face and they could just kind of stare at their feet as they're walking. And as they're thinking about, okay, we don't want to get this one wrong. I mean, they've been with Jesus a while now. They feel pressure like they probably should know who he is. They don't want to give the wrong answer. And, And so there's probably a little hesitation there among the group. And they're probably also thinking, well, if we really say who we think he is, then, then that means everything, everything in our lives is going to change. I mean, this is really a big deal if we say who we really think he is. And so as they're, they're kind of putting together their thoughts and, and trying to figure it out, the one disciple who's always the disciple in the group who just blurts out stuff and who speaks up, Peter, he jumps in and he blurts out and he says, you are the Messiah, Peter answers, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, if you remember from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark, in his gospel, he tells us who he thinks Jesus is. He says Jesus is the Messiah. In Greek, the word is Christ, so your Bible might have it in a different way. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Peter here we find that Peter, he actually gives the right answer. I mean, Peter, who often gets it wrong, Peter gives the right answer. And you have to realize up until this point, no person had had told Jesus his true identity yet. No person had spoken it out loud and declared that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he declares it. And at this moment, there's probably a jolt of electricity in the disciples. There's a jolt of excitement because they had been waiting as good Jewish people. They had been waiting. They had been reading the prophecies. They had been looking forward to the coming of the Messiah for a long time. Because throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we find these prophecies about a Messiah, a word that means anointed one, one who was going to come and rule as a king over Israel, the true king of Israel who would rule and reign over a kingdom that would last forever. I mean, they had been looking forward for so long in prayerful anticipation and they believed, you know what, this is him, this is it. He's here with us. And so there, there was a thrill of electricity and excitement in their bodies and they were probably also a little electrified because... If Jesus was the Messiah, if he is the true king of kings, then that means that all these pagan gods are false. 
It means that, that people like Herod, Philip, and other rulers in the Roman Empire, it means that they're not really that powerful. And if you know anything about powerful people, powerful people hate when their power is taken from them. And they hate when people are viewed as a threat to power. And so they're probably a little nervous at this point too, thinking, you know what, if Jesus is the actual Messiah, we're about to be in battle. People are going to be upset. Things are about to get real. And so then Jesus continues. After he warns them not to tell anyone about him, he, he says to them, he begins teaching. He begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he reveals to them that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And this here is the first time Jesus has told them about this plan that he's a part of. Up until this point, Jesus hasn't told them that his journey is to the cross. And as he reveals to them that he is going to be rejected by the religious leaders, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again, we begin to understand why constantly throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells people, hey, hey, keep it quiet. I don't know if you've noticed this, when Jesus does miracles in Mark's gospel, a lot of times he tells people, he says, hey, look, don't tell other people about it. Shh, don't post it on Instagram. Hey, don't, don't Facebook Live this healing, okay? He is constantly telling people, keep it on the down low. And this is why. Because he knows that his ultimate trajectory is the cross. It's crucifixion and it's resurrection he doesn't want people messing with the timeline because the time hasn't yet come. And so he wants to do things in proper order and in proper time. And so he asks him to keep it quiet. And so Mark tells us in verse 32 that Jesus spoke plainly about all of this, about how he was going to have to suffer and die. And, and then Peter took him aside and Peter began to rebuke Jesus. He began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he then rebuked Peter. And he said to him, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, this is a weird twist in this story because, I mean, Peter got the answer right. He, he got the correct answer that Jesus is the Messiah. But, but the reason why Jesus rebukes him here is because he got the correct answer, but he had a wrong understanding of what being the Messiah entailed. He, he, he said, Jesus, you're the Messiah, but when he was using the word Messiah, he, he was viewing it through a filter. He was viewing it one way, but Jesus knew that he was the Messiah, and what he meant by Messiah was something very different than by what Peter meant. And maybe you've found yourself in this situation before. I mean, have you ever been in a conversation and you and the other person are using the same word, but you mean completely different things by it? You ever found yourself there? Now, some of y'all got like to make fun of me because I, I confessed this a while back, but I, I do watch The Bachelor from time to time. I like other people's drama. I don't like drama in my own life, but I like to watch other people's drama. And now on The Bachelor, this is a very common problem among the people on the show. Because constantly what happens is the bachelor says to one of the women, hey, you know what? I, I love you. I'm falling in love with you. 
And the woman is like, wow, that's amazing. And she's thinking, wow, love, that's a lifetime commitment for the good of the other. Like, he's falling in love with me. He's choosing me. And then the next night, the bachelor comes to her and says, hey, you're, you're going home. And, and then the, the, the cameras interview the people afterwards, and they're like, wait a second. Like, he just said he loved me. And, and, and the bachelor's like, well, I mean, I said I was falling in love with you, or I said I love you, but I didn't mean that, like, I was going to marry you or anything. And so they're using the same words, but they're interpreting them in completely different ways. And that's what's happening here. Peter, he's declared, Jesus, you're the Messiah. But when he pictures the Messiah, he pictures what a lot of people pictured at that time. He's picturing a political ruler and a king who is going to come and who is going to take over territory, who is going to raise up an army and who is going to destroy people who gets in his way and who the religious leaders are going to bow down to and people are going to worship him. And he's excited. He, he, he's ready to gung-ho. He, he's ready to go and get on this train of the Messiah. And so when Jesus says, hey, yeah, you know, he pretty much says, I am the Messiah, and guess what? I'm going to have to suffer, I'm going to have to be rejected by the religious leaders, and I'm going to have to die, and then I'm going to rise again. Peter's like, what? That's crazy. The Messiah doesn't do that. A Messiah doesn't die. A Messiah kills people or rules over people. A Messiah, he doesn't, he doesn't reject people. He doesn't get rejected by the religious leaders. He rules over them. He, he's thinking, Jesus, that's not what being the Messiah is like. That's why he rebukes Jesus and he says hey Jesus I know that you're the true king but I'm going to tell you what being the true king looks like and Jesus says no 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 Peter I'm the Messiah and the Messiah that I am the king that I am looks very different from the king and kingship of what you have in your mind because as the true king I'm going to lay down my life for my enemies. I love my enemies. I'm going to suffer on behalf of the people, not make people suffer on my behalf. I am going to lay down my life. I am going to die. And I'm going to rise again. Jesus is trying to get him to see that the way I rule as king is very different from the ways people in this world rule as king. And my kingdom is very different than the kingdoms of this world. He, he's basically turning Peter's conceptions upside down. And as I've been reading this story this week, one of the things I encourage you to do is to ask questions along the way as you're reading through the Bible. And some of you have, have given me questions and I, I've tried to help answer them the best they could. But... I've been reading this story this week and one of the things that strikes me in this question I've had is a traditional reading of Mark says that John Mark wrote down the events of Jesus' life and that Peter was the main source for his knowledge about Jesus' life. And so later in life, Peter recounts different events to John Mark. He writes them down. And so my question is, why would Peter include this scene in the story of Jesus' life, because, I mean, think about it. If Jesus rebuked you and said, get behind me, Satan, would you want people for the next 2,000 years reading about it? 
No, I wouldn't. I mean, if Jesus rebuked me, I would delete all my social media accounts. I would just like hide in oblivion. I wouldn't want anybody to know about it. I would be so embarrassed, so ashamed. But Peter, he tells this story to John Mark and to other people. And I've been asking myself, why would Peter share this embarrassing story where he had the right answer, but he had a wrong understanding? Why would he share that with other people? It doesn't make sense to me. And so as I've been reflecting on it, I've been thinking about why that is. And I think it might be because Peter, after he encountered the resurrected Christ, he went on to do a lifetime of ministry. He went on to help lead many people to come to know Jesus better. And I think Peter shares this story here with John Mark and with other people. I think he shares it because he knows that people, people can believe in Jesus People can follow Jesus. People can serve Jesus. And he knows that people can have the right answers about Jesus, but still have a wrong understanding. And he shares this story with us. He shares this story with us so that we can get it right where he got it wrong. He shares this story so that we can have a proper understanding of Jesus and who he is and what it truly means for him to be our king. He wants us to see that, that we, we don't get to tell Jesus what him being our king means. We're called to submit our lives to him. And Peter, he encountered the resurrected Christ and when he did, he understood fully who Jesus is and what he meant. And so I think he's sharing this with us today so that we can learn and we can grow as well. And so all of this brings us back to that most important question once again. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? I'm going to have an awkward moment of silence here. I want you to reflect on that question in your heart. If I were to go around the room right now, I can kind of guess what the answers would be. My guess is there would be a segment of you, you would say, I don't know who Jesus is, that's why I'm here in church, to learn more about him. And that's a good answer, and we're glad you're here. Learning more about who Jesus is, this is a great place to do it. I think that'd be some of your answers. Others of you, you would answer, you'd say, hey, uh, I don't really believe in Jesus. I mean, this is interesting, but like, I don't believe he actually rose from the dead or anything like that. And if that's your answer, I'm glad you're here as well. My hope is that as you read the account of Jesus's life and as you gather with us, I, I hope that, that your mind and your heart will be transformed and view him differently. But my guess is the majority of you if I went around the room and had you write it down in little cards, who is Jesus to you? My guess is a lot of you, you'd give great answers. You'd give correct answers. You'd give the right answer. You'd say, hey, you know what? Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord. He's the leader of my life. Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the one who, who transformed me. He is the one I trust. With everything. I think a, a lot of us in here, 
we'd probably give the right answer. But I think if we dug down deeper and we really looked at how we live our lives and we looked at a practical understanding of of how we really live out who Jesus is, I think we'd find that a lot of us, we may know the right answers, but, but practically in our lives, maybe we have a different understanding of what Jesus as king means then than he actually wants for us. We'd have the right answer, but maybe a wrong understanding. Because I think a lot of us, I mean, if, if you think of it like a car, I heard a pastor say this one time, if you think about your relationship with Jesus as your king, and think about Jesus in your life like, like you're driving in a car with him, I think a lot of us, we'd say, yeah, Jesus is my savior, he's my king, and I love having him in the car with me. Because he's a great comfort in my life. Because when, when things are difficult and when things are challenging, I know that he's always there right beside me. I know that he will listen to me when I rant and when I cry and when I, I can't talk to anybody else. He is right here with me. And, and when, I, when I'm going through struggles and I need, I need health and I need healing, I can ask and he'll help provide. When I'm lost and I need guidance, He's here, and, and he will help guide me. I, I love having Jesus as my companion in my car. I mean, a lot of us in our understanding, we kind of understand Jesus as our king and who, who Jesus is to us. He's like the companion in our car. But this pastor said, I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's an okay way to understand who Jesus is. But if Jesus is truly your king, the king of your life, It's not enough for Jesus to just be in the car with you. You actually need to hand over the keys to Jesus. And so you actually, you need to switch positions here. You need to switch from being the driver to being the passenger. And now how many of you in here, you love to drive? Like you're the driver and you drive everywhere because you like being in control. You like knowing the destination You like knowing how you're going to get there, how much gas you have. You got the stops planned out along the way. I mean, I mean, that's me. So I'm I'm just speaking from experience. I either like to be the driver or I like to be the passenger. But if I'm the passenger, I still want to be in charge. And I'm still like, you're going a little slow. You know what? You need to speed it up. You're going a little fast. But if Jesus is truly going to be the king of our lives and we're not just going to give the right answer, but we're going to have a proper understanding, it means giving him the keys. It means letting him choose the destination. It means letting him decide how fast or how slow we're going to get there and whether it's going to be a direct route or there's going to be a lot of side streets. When Jesus is our king, it means our wallets are no longer our own. It means our political views need to be submitted to him. It means that we don't just tell him what to do anymore. We live our lives under him and trust him and what he wants for our lives. And and Peter knows, Peter's like most of us, he's lived his life with himself in the driver's seat, but he knows that when Jesus is truly your king and you're living life in submission to him, he knows it's then that you actually experience true freedom. It's then that you begin to flourish. 
it's then that we are able to experience what Jesus calls life and life abundant, life to the full, life as it was designed to be here and now in our world. But we have to be willing to submit our lives to him and to let him take over. So who is Jesus to you? I think as your pastor, you have a right to know my answer. And while, you know, this could be a sermon for me, if I were to give a, a brief answer, I, w- I would say my understanding of who Jesus is to me started when I was baptized as an infant. From the earliest days of my life until now, I've always heard and known that Jesus loves me. My family told me that. People around me told me that over and over again. And so I, I've never had a time in my life where, where I didn't know and feel that he loved me. And when I was in late elementary school, I was at a, a summer camp in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And a counselor took me aside and said, hey, uh, well, they said basically what Jesus said here. They said, hey, you know, Jesus died for you. He suffered. He's crucified and he rose again so that he could be the savior of your life, so that he could forgive you of your sin. Would you like to be forgiven? Would you like to know that he, he saved a place for you in eternity? And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. So that night I, I prayed. I said, Jesus, I want you to, to be my savior. I, I, I believe in you. I, I believe that you lived and died and rose again. And so Jesus, who is he to me? He became my savior. And then it was, it was later in life as I went to youth group and learned through other avenues that Jesus not only wanted to be my Savior, I began to Lord, learn that Jesus also wanted to be the Lord of my life. He wanted to be the King of my life, that I needed to live my life in submission to Him. And, and that's been a journey for me because that meant giving Him my past, trusting Him in the present, and also letting go of the future and letting him guide me. And uh, as somebody who loves planning and who loves control, it's, it's, it's very difficult for me to trust my future to Jesus. Even now, I struggle with it. And there's been times on the journey where, where I, I know Jesus is my savior, he's my Lord, he's the king of my life, but, but I still yank him out of the driver's seat and I say, hey, you need to play passenger for a little while. I regret those times, but, but those have been in my life. There have been times where, where Jesus says, hey, Jonathan, that's not good for you. That's sin, and I'm like, hey, you know what, Jesus? I'm like, Peter, I know a little bit better than you. And I always find out that he was right. I was wrong. But along the journey of my life of knowing Jesus as my Savior, Jesus as my Lord, I've also known Jesus as my friend. The one who's always with me. The one who is patient with me when I get it wrong. The one when I'm, when I'm quick to speak and, and slow to listen, the one who will forgive me. He's always been there. I know he loves me, he forgives me, and he wants what's best for me. And, and this is still a journey. And I think answering this question, who is Jesus to you? It's a journey for all of us. And hopefully as we're growing, we're growing more and more like him and understanding him and submitting our lives to him. And so this morning, I'll ask you one final time, who is Jesus to you? 
This is perhaps the most important question you can answer for yourself. And this week, I, I want you to be reflecting on that question. If you, if you keep a journal, I'd love for you to journal. If you've been reading Mark with your family, with your children, your spouse, I'd love for you to talk about this question with those around you. Maybe talk about it on your way home or as you have lunch today. Who is Jesus to you? And then I want you to come back next week because next week we're gonna continue looking at what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does it mean practically in our lives when we say, Jesus, you're number one. You're the king. How does that change us here and now? So let's pray together. God, we often get it wrong. We often know the Sunday school answer and we say the right things and we put on our church clothes and we put on our church smiles. But underneath, we're, we're lost, we're broken, we don't fully understand. And so God, this morning we pray that, that your love would meet us right where we are, wherever we are on this journey of understanding, God. If we're exploring, we pray that you would help answer our questions. God, if, if we're needing to grow in faith, we pray that you would help us to grow in faith. God, if we know who your son Jesus is, we know he's the true king. We know he's worthy of our praise and of our submission. God, I pray that you would help us to live under his authority. And God, I pray that as we answer this question for ourselves, who is Jesus to us? I pray that our answer would change us here and now and change us for all time. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name.